0: I'm Gemma Schneider, and this is Where Are They Now? Where Are They Now? is a WHRB original series in which I take a deep dive into the insights and experiences of Harvard alumni who have made an impact. They are trailblazers who have touched the world in ways that they could never have planned for, expected, or imagined when they were students. And now... They are eager to tell their unique stories for the benefit of current students and our wider community of listeners out there. This series is made possible by One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan, our production partner and sponsor. One in a Billion is a nonprofit educational media company whose mission is to foster Asian voices and deepen cross cultural understanding through podcast and film productions, blogs, and network events. One in a Billion's founder, Mabel Chan, is also a Harvard alum, class of 93, from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She'll be joining us as a regular commentator and co-host on the podcast. In this episode, I am speaking with Janet Hook, a national political reporter, a mom, an Arsenal fan, and a self-described lover of Maine. Janet earned her BA in Philosophy and Government from Harvard College in 1977, and she has spent over 40 years covering national politics all over the map, at publications like the Congressional Quarterly, the Wall Street Journal, and currently at the Los Angeles Times. Today, we talk about how Janet's scholarly interest in political philosophy ultimately led her to become an on-the-ground political reporter we also speak about Janet's undergraduate experience at what was then Harvard Radcliffe, which was heavily dominated by men at the time. Obviously, a lot has changed politically since Janet's earliest days as a reporter. But as she recalls, some things have remained just the same, like the wonder and thrill that comes with approaching and interviewing the most random of people on the streets, all of whom have their own unique stories and thoughts to share. At the end of this episode, you'll also hear from Mabel Chan, our podcast contributing commentator and co-host. As a former journalist herself, Mabel will share her thoughts about this interview, a commentary about her Harvard education, which opened doors for her at CBS News in New York. How? Stay tuned. But now, here's my conversation with Janet Hook. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's great to be here with you, Gemma. Thanks for asking me. I want to start with a question that links to the behind the scenes dynamics of what you do now. So right now your job comes with the mandate and responsibility to really closely scrutinize the personalities and beliefs and actions of so many political actors. And it's something that even when you're a student studying government at college, you don't see the same kind of nuances and real details as what you're seeing. And I know that you studied both government and philosophy when you were in college. And so I'm curious how your view of politics, given your experiences over the years, have changed since you were that student studying government, just from more of an academic perspective.
1: Oh my, um, I guess looking back when I was in college, I didn't know anything about politics. Um, I, I had been done a little bit of kind of political activities when I was in high school, and, um, but really nothing to do with elective politics, which is kind of what I've been covering for most of my life as a journalist. Uh, When I was studying government at Harvard, most of the courses that I took were political theory or political philosophy courses. And I have to say that did provide me with an invaluable framework for thinking about politics, but it actually didn't tell me too much about the nitty gritty of how candidates are elected, how laws are made in Congress, how candidates become president. I think the most important thing that I learned from studying political philosophy is how much our politics um, reflect our values and that our values change over time, that elections are often about choosing between competing value sets. Um, And I don't think that's, that would You don't need a Harvard degree in philosophy to know that, but I I feel like it was really um, grounded in some sort of deeper thinking about what people are deciding when they decide who should have power in government.
0: I like what you said about how what you're doing does not take a Harvard degree in philosophy. And and I think that also speaks to the fact that your job has a lot to do with drawing on personal experience and perspective and your own judgments and evaluations, even going back to your college years. A particular experience I'm curious about is that when you were there, the Radcliffe-Harvard merge was only beginning to take effect. And so I'm curious about how that might have shaped your outlook about not only politics, but your outlook on the future and your career and even how it might have evolved since college as you were charting the world of journalism?
1: Uh, I actually, I entered Harvard uh, Radcliffe, Harvard Radcliffe, as it was called at the time, at a very interesting time. And it was kind of somewhat between eras, which is to say, long before I got there, um, the university was co-ed in classes and in dormitories. So that for all intents and purposes. For years before I got there, I um, was a freshman in 1973. Uh, there were men and women in the same classroom, in the same dorm, in the same bathrooms. Uh, but the one thing that remained as a the, the last relic of independent identity that Radcliffe had was that it had its own admissions board. Uh, but what it meant though, was that I went to a university that was heavily dominated by men. And it it really felt to me a lot like a a male institution. And to be honest with you, I didn't feel very at home there, at least for the first two years that I was there, for reasons that probably extend beyond just Harvard and its welcoming for women. Uh, So I felt like I was admitted to Radcliffe, but never quite um, had any reason to identify with it because its own institutions were so diminished.
0: Yeah. You you said that in the early days, you didn't feel at home. At Harvard, did that change at all with time through the years that you were there? Yes,
1: it did. It did. And it's very hard for me to remember what it was like to be Janet Hook at age 19. Uh, I have this general feeling that uh, I was very motivated to succeed academically because it was the one thing that I, I really loved to do and felt like I could do it without Uh, competition. One thing that I found off-putting about Harvard was that you you didn't just join extracurricular activities. You had to compete to be part of it. Like I thought about how much fun it would be to work for the radio station, but then I found out you had to compete for the right to participate. And I was, I was afraid of that. And so there was a way in which I felt like I ended up shaping my life around avoiding that kind of competition which probably limited my my access to opportunities at Harvard but I found other things that were satisfying and one of them was I just really loved my classes I loved studying and so I didn't, didn't feel like there was ever I can't think of a single person until I got my thesis advisor who I considered a mentor or a guide so in that respect I felt very alone. I got most of my advice and support from my friends. So maybe they do things differently now, but that w- that was what my experience was.
0: It's really interesting. It's interesting even what you said about the radio because for us now there still exists competitive comps, the process of competing for admission to a club on so many in so many different organizations, but WERB is one where the comp is very laid back and not competitive. So it's interesting that that's kind of evolved. Oh, damn. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) If only I'd probably be a radio (laughs) journalist
1: today. if, if That had not been the case.
0: I, I do wish even now that some of the comps were less competitive. I think there still definitely exists a dynamic for a lot of students, including myself, where some just seem so cutthroat that why even deal with it? So I think that does still exist to an extent. I. So you said whether becoming a radio journalist, but you did know that, did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? I know very early out of college, you did start working for Public Interest Magazine. So was that always something that was in your mind?
1: To be honest, hardly at all. Um, I, when I was in college, I thought I was going to go uh, to graduate school and a philosophy professor because I just I loved it and I thought that would be fun and interesting and so that I actually did very very little hardly any journalism extracurriculars at Harvard like I worked on one of the poetry magazines kind of lightly and so it really wasn't until I got to be a senior and then realized you know I don't think I want to get a PhD uh, it was a time when there was a huge PhD glut, so there were a lot of market reasons to not want to go to graduate school. But I also ended up feeling like being an academic, especially being a philosophy academic, would be a very inward-looking life. It would be very insular and not... Now, I know this isn't really true for all professors, but it felt like it wouldn't be as engaged in the world as I wanted it to be. So I kind of launched my own journalism career without the benefit of having worked for the, the Crimson or the Harvard Political Review. Uh, and so it was only sort of in the doing that I discovered that it was some something that I could and wanted to make a career out of it.
0: You know, it, it could arguably be easier to go down the path of getting a Ph.D., something pertaining to philosophy, something that you were focused on more explicitly and that's kind of the direction if you saw yourself going. So that's a scary choice. Did it feel scary at the time? I, I
1: don't remember it that way. And I don't think it would have been easier to to get, I mean, easier intellectually to just kind of keep walking in the same direction if I had gone on to be a, get a PhD in philosophy. But I think I was pretty clear in my mind that that, that, was, that would be leading to a life where it would actually be harder to contribute usefully, like, I mean, the way I put it to myself at the time, or maybe I put it to myself in retrospect, is that it is really easy to be a mediocre philosopher. It's really hard to be a great philosopher. And in journalism, by contrast, you know, if you're a mediocre journalist, you still kind of do something useful. Uh, So not that I was planning to be a mediocre or anything, but I just thought that the bar for being a great philosopher was so high that I, I, I just thought I didn't want the life that fell short of that, and I didn't know whether I, I didn't think that I had it in me to be the next Immanuel Kant. I,
0: I like that too, especially the the aspects of it where it was easy to transition and you didn't feel that you were abandoning a certain path. So, a question I have also in terms of those early years is. In 1987 I saw your first appearance on C-SPAN and at that point you're 10 years out of college and something that I really loved in that interview was just it was a very subtle detail but the person interviewing you asked whether your job was fun and you gave such an authentic, bubbling yes, a quiet yes, but I just I noticed it and I think the the reality that 10 years out of college you're doing something that you love that you enjoy that's fun is awesome. And I think that's what every student wants. How long did it take you to get to that point where it was fun? Um, were there any doubts along the way? You know,
1: all of the jobs that I had in my twenties were fun. I I loved working at the public interest. And then, uh, after that I moved to, to Washington to be a reporter for a weekly paper called the Chronicle of Higher Education. Then when I went from there to Congressional Quarterly, which is where I worked when you saw me on TV, that also was fun because I really plunged into learning deep about Congress, which ended up being a journalistic specialty of mine for many years. So c was a great outlet for um, CQ reporters, because if you if you read CQ, you're really into Congress, and if you watch C-SPAN, you're really into Congress. So they often asked us to be on as guests, and it was a limited exposure enough that it wasn't as terrifying as if my first uh, television appearance had been on CNN or you know a network TV. It was you know it was just C-SPAN. Not to denigrate it, but you felt like they were people who appreciated. The kinds of reporting that a CQ reporter had to offer. It was a little terrifying, though, taking phone calls, and they do that a lot because you just never know who's going to call in. And there were some pretty wacky people. You know, you're on at seven o'clock in the morning, and somebody calls from Alaska, and then you figure out that it's like five, you know, three o'clock in the morning in Alaska. Who are these people who are calling? Uh, So it was. It always required a certain uh, agility and dexterity to answer questions that were sometimes kind of wacky.
0: Yeah, I was curious about that. Number one, getting in those calls. And number two, you totally don't know what's going to come, whether that's some comment that's hard to respond to or a question that's really challenging. How did you make sure that you were on the ball and ready for all of those?
1: Well, I would always study up on the topic of the day. Um, But here, I'm going to give you a deep, dark secret, a a trick of the trade that now that I tell you this, you're going to hear it every time you hear somebody being interviewed when you want to get a little time to collect your thoughts you say the caller asks a really good question or if you're if you're on NPR or some other place you just say you know audie that's a really good question and then you kind of pause and you think anyway i so, should say
0: right now that's a really good comment before
1: <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing is I mean, this is a little bit of a dodge, but there's often the case where if they ask a question that you don't really know the answer to, you kind of answer an adjacent question. Mm
0: -hmm. As you're doing this over the years, politics has changed so much. Of course, there are also natural patterns and proclivities. What has stood out to you the most, the differences over the years or how some things just remain the same?
1: I say the the differences stand out the most. So what's changed that affects me and my ability to do my job, one thing that's changed a lot is the sense that politicians are much more about uh, sticking to a message. Like I feel like it's harder to get beneath the surface talking to politicians than when I first started. And part of it has to do with Uh, hostility and suspicion toward the media. And it's especially true among Republicans, but it's also somewhat true among Democrats that they feel like, especially because the outlet for everything they say isn't just, okay, I'm talking to Janet today, tomorrow she will put maybe one quote of mine into a a newspaper article so that you you can talk for 20 minutes and expect only one quote to be used. So I feel like the cumulative effect has been that I feel like it's it's a lot harder to get people to let down their guard and tell you either what's really going on, you know, anything that's not completely rosy. On the other hand, that is that's what a reporter's job is is to to find ways around around the walls, over the walls, through the walls that people put up when you talk to them. To be honest though, even to this day It just totally amazes me. And it is the the great gift of the profession of journalism. Like I think of a press pass as a license to talk to total strangers, wherever you are. All you have to do is say, hi, I'm Janet Hook from the LA Times. What brings you here? You're at a political rally. Or I'm Janet Hook with the LA Times. I'm really interested in what this town is like. Can you tell me? And total strangers talk to you. It's just, it's astonishing. I don't know whether I would if a a reporter approached me, but the the world, the country is just filled with people who like to tell stories and I'm I'm there to hear them. And so that's something I love. And it's something that has never changed politics. I mean, it's a, a cliche now, though, to say that politics are more polarized so that there's a way in which the political dynamics of Congress and campaigns is It's definitely different. Is it less interesting? I don't know if it's less interesting, but it's definitely different.
0: And I know this is something that also dates back to when you have discussed interviewing techniques, just going up to someone and saying, what brings you here today and how much you can get out of a person from that. What is maybe the most surprising thing that's ever come out of one of those questions?
1: Oh boy, most surprising thing well, I, I it's like impossible to answer that question directly, or no, I should say that's a very good question. <laughs> let me let me think about that. Um, I, I I had a great this isn't surprising, but this is the kind of thing that you can get that's really helpful is that I went up to a woman at an event. I was writing a story about the um the Boston mayor's race just a couple months ago. Because I got interested in it because I was working on a story about women of color in politics. And somebody pointed out to me, "She's, hey, have you noticed that all of the leading candidates in the Boston mayor's race are are women of color? And I said, what? Boston? And it was just like such a a shock. It was so different from the Boston that I knew when I lived in Cambridge, where, you know, Irish white men ruled everything. So anyway, so I was at an event with the, the acting mayor and i went up to this woman and i said what brings you here and she looked so engaged and participating and she said oh my mother <laughs> so she she introduces me to her mother and she was there only because her mother dragged her along but her mother just turned out to be totally fascinating and It's a good thing. If I hadn't asked her what brings you here, I would have just asked her questions and she would have answered them and it would have been kind of boring. But when I asked what brings you here and she introduced me to her mother, it was just like it opened a whole different door.
0: When you interviewed recently, you interviewed Congresswoman Karen Bass and you mentioned how there was no white man in in the mayoral race. Uh, Was that at all, that question at all inspired by that instance?
1: Yes, actually I did that interview with Karen Bass in connection with that story. They so this is this is a new thing that when you do a story that they always like to have visual components and so they I did an interview with her and talked to her about the broader issues about uh women of color in politics. So they, they were connected.
0: That's cool. And have you enjoy taking on that focus now especially with Kamala as VP and what the kind of the the new opportunities in politics because back when you started there was definitely not as much of that so as you're watching these changes has that been hardening for you how has that been for you on both a, a professional level as well as a personal level?
1: Oh it's really thrilling I mean and it is probably one of the the two or three biggest changes in politics since I started covering it. And to be honest with you, that is exactly why I loved writing that Boston story. So a lot of change in politics happens gradually. And sometimes you just have to step back and say, "Okay, so every year there have been a few more women in Congress, a few more women of color. But like at a certain tipping point, the Democratic caucus in the House became majority people of color. And, And that's a big deal. And you see more and more Democratic women elected. And in 2018, when a record number of women were elected to the House, they were almost all Democrats. And the number of Republican women in the House went down to a near record low. So what you see there is two things one is just you know the expanding opportunity for women in politics but how almost exclusively it is on the democratic side and that's that's another big change that's going on is how much the two parties are being sorted by gender and uh generation
0: it's possible that the backlash against Trump, anger at these past four years have excited something within people and galvanized them and could have caused changes that are actually going to be positive moving forward in terms of diversity in office. So something that I'm wondering is whether you think that to be true. That's my first question. Yes.
1: The the short answer is yes, is that I think that one of the most interesting and potentially positive effects of the Trump years is that people got more interested in politics, and to be honest, it's on both sides because I think a lot of the Trump supporters and Trump voters are new voters. They hadn't been paying attention to politics, and Trump drew them in in a way that conventional Republicans had not. And on the Democratic side, the the hostility to Trump really awakened a kind of, a level of of activism, especially among younger voters and voters of color that hadn't been there before. That sort of turnout records were broken on both sides. And I think the biggest question is whether that's going to be a lasting increase or whether it's specifically because of Trump, that Trump leaves the scene and all of the Trump voters leave the scene and Democrats go back to being a little ho-hum about it.
0: Do you think that there's something that can be done to preserve that energy? Well, um,
1: the Democratic Party is trying. I think there are a lot of outside the party groups that are trying to hold on to the energy, progressive groups, um, trying to keep people active and engaged. I think it's it's gonna be hard, especially in a midterm when turnout always drops off. And Trump is obviously trying to keep his base engaged because he's not leaving the scene. I think that it's more likely that he will succeed in keeping his voters engaged because the, the dynamic in midterms and part of the reason why historically the, the president's party loses in midterms is that the out party is usually a whole lot madder and
0: more motivated. And
1: you definitely see that going on now. Yeah,
0: So the backlash can kind of work on both sides. Right. So I know that you've done a study group at Harvard. Um, you did this throughout the year last year. A question that I have is, as you're analyzing the events that unfolded after the Trump presidency, and as you're working with students, what are your hopes moving forward for student engagement in politics based on some of the experiences that you've had?
1: Well, I really hope that the level of political engagement among younger voters stays high. And I do have some anxiety about that remaining the same. I mean, I do feel like Everything that happened over the last four years was driven by Trump. And if he stays, if, if he's not so prominent on the scene, I think people also were kind of a little exhausted by politics after two such incredibly, three incredibly intense elections. And I just think that apathy creates a, a political vacuum that get fills gets filled by people who, you know, shouldn't be speaking for all of us. So that's my, my greatest hope. I'm a little anxious about it being fulfilled, but you never know.
0: I'm a little bit optimistic. So I think another final question that I have is what your advice for students would be to preserve that energy, that involvement, that engagement. What steps would you offer? And also what mindsets would you hope that students hold on to?
1: Well, I hope that students can hold on to the mindset of you can make a difference. There are all these elections that have happened that are were down to such a small number of votes that everybody should really just bag that idea that my vote doesn't count. And, and you know I didn't mean to sound quite so pessimistic about what, what's happening next because actually the Harvard um, Institute of Politics poll that came out this spring while I was still there was so filled with hope about students being um engaged, more engaged than ever, and hopeful about the future. So far far be it from me, surly baby boomer, to kind of try to throw cold water on that. So I I I am hopeful when I think about that kind of thing.
0: Well no, I think that it's always important to have caution and skepticism. And I think that's such a great way to close. Um, and also the advice for holding on to it because I think that if we don't have a little bit of skepticism and caution, then there's more of a risk that that positive energy will go away. And if we're attuned to making sure it's preserved, that's how it will be preserved. So I think ending with that note of optimism as well as hope for the future and ways to preserve it is perfect. And I'm so happy that we got to have this conversation and that you were able to join me today. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure, Gemma. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thank you so much to Janet Hook for joining us today. Now, it's time for a few words from our contributing commentator and co-host, Mabel Chan of One in a Billion, our production partner and sponsor of Where Are They Now?
2: Hi, Jenna. After listening to your interview with Janet Hook, I'm happy to share some thoughts about our Harvard education, career choices, and the pursuit of success. Well, how often do you hear a Harvard alum say you don't need a Harvard degree in X to do your job in Y? Well, I find that kind of open and candid remark from Janet both refreshing and thought-provoking. Obviously, the question of need depends on what your job is, who you are, and why you chose Harvard to begin with. But that prompted me to reflect on my own life and career journey and how Harvard fit in. Like Janet, I too have had many jobs in journalism. But unlike Janet, who specialized in politics and writes for mostly national publications, I specialized in breaking news like fire, hurricane, or murder, and human interest stories such as parenting, health, and money matters. And I wrote and produced for local and national TV networks like CBS, NBC, and ABC. Even though our journalistic work serves different audiences and requires different lenses for a focus, the fundamental requirements are the same sharp observation, curiosity about people and problems, and great analytical thinking and writing skills to package the information we've gathered into a compelling story for print or broadcast. Harvard at the college level can never teach you what to expect in the workplace in terms of the nuts and bolts of a job because it's not a vocational training school. As Jana said, Harvard did educate her with an analytical framework to think about political issues through her concentration in philosophy and government. In a similar way, my own Harvard education at the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences with a focus on regional studies East Asia has also given me an organized approach to understanding and analyzing China and Japan. I had to take the Japanese language in addition to the two Chinese languages that I already speak, believe it or not. It was my study of Japan and the Japanese language that led me to apply for a summer internship with CBS News in Japan. And that summer of working with CBS staff, most of whom were Japanese, allowed me to not only practice Japanese, but also impress the American colleagues who were the bureau chief, producers, and correspondents. I eventually got hired by CBS News even before I finished finals for my graduate program. As a first-generation Asian immigrant in America, I've always felt self-conscious that English is not my native tongue and that I may be seen as a perpetual foreigner here. But my Harvard education has helped me develop the intellectual firepower and personal confidence that I needed to pursue what's possible in America, this land of the free and home of the brave. You may remember why Janet Hook chose to be a journalist rather than a professor of philosophy. For her, it was not only a career choice, but also a lifestyle choice. She did not want an inward-looking, insular life, She wanted to engage the world in a way that guarantees her contributions would be useful. Well, I feel the same way. I'm no longer a full-time journalist, but I'm passionate about storytelling and mentoring. Through my own media nonprofits, one in a billion productions, I want to build a culture conscious society where our differences in age, race, cultural or gender identities invite curiosity in conversations, not hate or bias. What is your idea of your contributions to the world? Send me your thoughts. I love feedback.
0: This has been Where Are They Now? Produced by myself, Gemma Schneider, at WHRB News in Cambridge, in collaboration with One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan. The music for our show was created by Dash Chin of WHRB News. You can also learn more about our podcast partner and sponsor, One in a Billion Productions, by checking out oneinabillionvoices.org. Or Mabel's podcast, One in a Billion, an interview show about Asian culture and society, one person at a time, on Apple iTunes, PRX, or SoundCloud. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Where Are They Now? Tune in for another episode of Where Are They Now on WHRB 95.3 FM at the same time next week, same place. In the meantime, learn more about our podcast and catch up on old episodes by visiting our website. WHRB.org. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or PRX.